Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. It's a different kind of holiday than we've experienced before, but we're thankful you're spending part of it with us. We sure are. And today we're going to bring you two of our favorite interviews from the past year, conversations about racial justice and policing. Those calls for police reform began after the killing of George Floyd moved from the streets to the ballot box in California, with police reform measures passing from San Diego and Los Angeles to Oakland and San Francisco. And in the next year, lawmakers in Sacramento have promised to revisit some of the statewide reforms that didn't make it out of the legislature in 2020. Some of those ideas could be informed by the work of Governor Gavin Newsom's Task Force on Police Reform. It was created in June and co-chaired by activist Latifah Simon and Ron Davis. He's a former advisor to President Obama on policing. Both have had remarkable lives and careers, and we're excited to bring you our conversations with both Simon and Davis today. We'll start with Simon. Here she is talking about her work in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, where she got her start under America's next vice president, Kamala Harris. You know, when I went to go, you know, work for the DA's office, um, it was the newly elected district attorney, Kamala Harris, asked me, do you want to stay outside with your bullhorn or do we want to do something inside here? Um, and you know, she called me every day for many weeks trying to convince me I was running the Young Women's <laughs> Freedom Center at the time. She's like, come on, let's do something. And, you know, my first day on the job, it took a lot of convincing uh, to create a reentry unit and to really focus on the war on drugs in that office and figure out how to... Uh, push for reforms for young people, especially young people involved in uh, the underground street economy. She showed me, I don't know, it was 60 pictures plus of, of DAs who had came before her. And then you see this picture of a black woman on the wall. And she said, you know, folks are gonna expect me to undo um, over 150 years of racism inside of the system. We're not going to be able to do it overnight, but we're gonna chip away at it. Um, in that time in the DA's office, creating a, a program where we push for the release and the dropping of charges and the sealing of arrest for mostly young black men who are arrested for selling crack, getting folks jobs and daycare and uh, moving them into education. Even within the office, um, venerable attorneys would laugh at our program. Uh, so it wasn't it, the, the district attorneys association and our local POA, they hated what we were doing. Um, and, and I saw the really that, that struggle of moving into an institution as an elected leader um, with this burden, this, this, this righteous burden of wanting to transform a system um, that was really created um, <laughs> for the exact opposite reason, right? Well, not, about, mm -hmm. not about transformation. So it was, it was tough, but I'm glad and I'm proud of the work that we did. And it was 20 years ago. 
Yeah, well, let me, yeah. let me ask you about uh, Kamala Harris's time as DA, because as you said, she came in with a lot of expectations, although she didn't really run as the liberal. She ran to the right of Terrence Hallinan, really, or to the middle, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and shortly after she is the DA, a cop is killed. And she declines, as she promised, not to seek the death penalty. And I'm wondering, you know, what is your sense? I don't know if you were there then, but, you know, the fact No, I that, wasn't there, but I remember very, I, I, it was, it's, a, it's an opaque memory in my mind. What is your sense of that and how it affected the course of her, the rest of her time as DA and even as AG, where, as you know, she was criticized by the Black Caucus in the legislature mm-hmm. for not mm-hmm. being progressive enough on police shootings, use of force, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting. I wasn't there uh, you know, when Officer Espinoza was murdered and when anybody is murdered, um, it's a deep loss. Um, It's 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 an extreme deep loss. But I do remember, you know, being with the young women that I was working for who had been in systems. And I remember watching that funeral and I saw police officers turn their back um, on the district attorney. There was so much hurt and pain um, in that room. And, you know, Watching her now, like on, I'll turn on MSNBC or CNN, and I, and I, rem, and and she has, you know, this this fury in her in this moment, and it reminds me of the conversation that I had with her. She was a mentor of mine, you know, when she decided to run for Senate, and she said, Latifa, you know, as a district attorney and even as the AG, you have to follow the law, and I. I I need to write the laws and even progressive DAs, you know, George Gascon, again, you know, wasn't able to prosecute the men who killed Mario Woods. Um, we have a, 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 a system that in its very bone marrow, um, I think it hurts officers and it hurts citizens, lay citizens. Uh, we, we have to create uh, a system of safety that, that really works for us all. And again, I'm not purporting that any of this is easy. Okay, none, none of it is easy. If it was easy, we, any the great the greatest leaders would have done it. Um, but I'm also clear. I'm also clear. And as you know, after the country burned, after the assassination of Martin Luther King, the Civil Rights Act of '68 was passed. My hope is that you know every mayor, every police chief, heads of unions, uh, of course the organizers and activists who have uh, shown a mirror to the American face. Um, and challenged our democracy. I have faith that we get it right. My role uh, in my day-to-day life outside of my elected role is I run a foundation that is focused on racial justice and we've been funding movement groups for 20 years to hold leaders to task. Um, And it's not just about justice, it's for us in funding these groups about racial justice. We understand that we can't get there until we acknowledge really, again, like uh, the, the, the architecture of systems we, we can get it right, but it's going to take time and progress is not swift. And Latifa, we mentioned earlier, you grew up in the Fillmore District. Um, mm-hmm. It was a rough time there, I believe. I think you grew up in public housing. Um, I don't know. Tell us about your childhood a little bit. Yeah, you know, it was actually when I was in my late teens that we ended up moving to the Banneker Homes, which is low-income housing in the Fillmore. But my early years, you know, I grew up in the Western Edition, you know, right mm-hmm. by the pan handle and a, a beautiful Victorian. I remember black folks used to actually live in those Victorians. I lived on Fulton between Baker and Lyon. Um, you know, the 80s for many of us was a glorious time. And for many of us, not just in Fillmore, not just in Hunters Point or Sunnydale, but all around the country. In fact, we saw um, the proliferation of crack cocaine. We saw the proliferation of the drug war. We saw outside of our windows, mass incarceration begin to take hold. You know, 
the folks we were on big wheels with and skates, you know, we, we saw them being taken away on their stomachs in police cars, a very deep and, 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 and difficult time. My mother was a single mother. I am also um, a daughter to the late Mark Simon. The Simon family came here you know, in the 50s and my grandpa um, opened the, the, black, the first of many black nightclubs, jazz nightclubs in, in the city. Uh, my parents, before they had us, you know, they were radicals and um, revolutionaries. My aunt was very active in the Black Panther Party, God rest her soul, was one of the, the, the core members of the Serve the People campaign that served Black children lunches in West and East Oakland. And so we, um, poor people have a story in this country, right? Because folks live in public housing or their communities have experienced the horrors of incarceration. Um, there are remarkable people every inch of the way. It is about who is given opportunity to tell those stories. It is about who gets an opportunity to do the work full time. You know, we, those of us who have been activist organizers now in philanthropy and government, our job is to tell those stories every day to make them real for folks and to humanize the experience. Uh, so, uh, I mean, again, I went to George Washington High School. I didn't do great in school. That's the school with the speaking. mural, isn't it? The school with the controversial mural. Yeah, actually, that, <laughs> yes. that mural, we, we, we hate it. I hate that mural to this day. I, for a lot, a, lot, a lot of the folks who love it, I'm like, you didn't go walk up those stairs and see Black people picking cotton every morning. But yeah, I went to George Washington High School, got a great education, even though I struggled. I wasn't the best kid. I was in the juvenile justice system for parts of my teenage years. I had a baby at 19. She's off to law school in a few weeks. Um, well, let me... So, I want to ask you yeah. though, because I mean, that's you have an amazing story. We could easily have you on and just talk about your, you know, your life, not just the politics and everything else that's going on. But how did you get from, you know, the, the troubled neighborhood and the difficulties you were having in school, to ending up at the Center for Young Women's Development at age fifteen and becoming the executive director just a few years later? Yeah, you know, I, there's a woman who, there's two women and a connection, a, a crew of women who helped to establish the center in the early days. Uh, Rachel Pfeffer was the executive founding executive director. There was a Native American woman named Blackstar, um, and they came together. And there was a small grant that we got, they got then from the Women's Foundation of California to hire girls who were in trouble. Um, and with the goal and intent of creating an organization like a Highlander school of uh, for girls on the streets and girls in the juvenile justice system and girls uh, like myself who are just having a really hard time. And I thought it was, and it still is amazing that there is a place for young women to develop their power. The Young Women's Freedom Center is still active in San Francisco. In fact, they're, you know, they have chapters all over the state. And I'm so happy that I got at 17, 16, 17, an opportunity actually to push back on you know the the dichotomy of the good and bad neighborhood or the good or bad experience and understand that we all have so much to 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 give to this thing called democracy you know, there's five about you know 500 women that have gone through that space just as employees in the last 20 or something years mm -hmm. and our lives were all transformed so what a blessing and we need not to just support young people in their pathology but in their hopes and their dreams Hmm. I want to ask you about your, your husband, uh, journalist uh, Kevin Weston. Uh, you called yes. him the man I'd been praying for in 2012. Oh. And, and when you <laughs> married, uh, he was, I think you married at his bedside. He was, uh, he was yeah. fighting leukemia, and sadly he died a couple years later. Uh, yeah. how, did you, yeah. how did you deal with that? I mean, going from finding this guy you were finally, that you'd been hoping <laughs> to find, and then he's gone. 
Yeah, yeah. Kevin, Kevin's, Kevin's sitting right next to me, I believe, right now. <laughs> Kevin died on Father's Day in 2014, mm. and he, wow. like you all, um, were journalists. I think that in, in your green room, you'll see on the right side of the chalkboard, it says Kevin Weston Rocks. I don't know who put mm -hmm. it there, but every time I'm mm. in there, I just, it gives me light. You know, Kevin was um, a writer a storyteller and his job was to hire young people to tell really their, their current stories and their wishes for hopes and freedom. And I was so lucky and blessed to find him. I actually met him in the district attorney's office. <laughs> he was doing a press conference about, <laughs> again, about black life. Um, there was a young black woman who, uh, remember this, she tragically threw her babies over. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I covered that. That was and, tra and the, so traumatic. And you were probably at that press conference where I met my husband. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I was running the Back on Track program and snuck my way in, and, and we met. Um, I think the gift that I have of, of Kevin's legacy is that stories need to be told. Um, and all the writers that he worked with and hired, they're still telling stories and they're still writing. I think that for, for me, the lesson in uh, being a caregiver, right, um, of someone who had terminal cancer is really every day when I think about the essential workers and the caregivers who still now, you know, brace the reality that they have to go out there and love on folks to keep them alive and keep their dignity um, while they're struggling. It just, you know, Brian Stephen tells us to be proximate. And, I, you know, I, 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 I'm just so thankful that I had a community and I'm so thankful that we had health insurance. I'm so thankful that I had Kevin and his fight, you know, for his life, but what it, it has it continued to inspire me to listen, because I thought I knew yeah. a little bit about everything before Kevin got sick. And watching <laughs> someone fight for their lives, you learn a lot. That was activist and Bay Area Rapid Transit or BART director Latifa Simon. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll bring you a conversation with former police chief Ron Davis. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. We're going to continue our conversation on policing and racial justice now with former East Palo Alto Police Chief Ron Davis. He worked in the Obama administration's Department of Justice on police reform, and he told us how he sees systemic racism at work in policing. When I say systemic racism, not necessarily the police departments, 
themselves as much as the policing system in the United States. And so if you look at the historical context, the first, first police were, were actually created. The first system was designed to protect the institution of slavery. We then used police to enforce Jim Crow laws and black codes. And basically, we've used the police to then enforce discriminatory laws that run in books, whether it was voting, whether it was uh, expressing the First Amendment. You just look at the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And let's look at historical context. In the 90s, we used the police for the war on drugs, which turned out to be war on communities of color. So the systems were designed years ago, and they were designed to enforce discriminatory laws. And my, my concern is, is that many of those operating systems, how we fight crime, how we view the enforcement of laws, how we deploy officers, are based on a model that is still dysfunctional, so that even good police officers have bad outcomes. And bad officers get to hide into the system and operate with impunity. And so when you say structural racism or institutional racism, people need to understand that is not suggesting that the police departments are right for racist cops. It's suggesting that it's not. It's suggesting that the vast majority of them are good men and women trying to do a tough job, but even they will have bad outcomes because of how we police, why we police, and what they're told to do. Every community member or law enforcement should ask the question, what should the police be doing anyway? Let's reimagine it and see how we can enhance public yeah, I mean, that is a big sort of thread in this uh, defund the police movement, which I think can mean different things depending on where you sit politically. Um, talk about what it means to you. And isn't that maybe an area where the left and the right or however you want to say it in this situation, the, the activists and the police could agree? Because I hear police saying all the time, we don't want to be social workers. We don't want to be drug treatment counselors. We shouldn't be out here, you know, resolving small disputes. Um, isn't that an argument for taking that money and giving it to, to people who are equipped to handle those issues? So you, you hit the, I think you hit the nail on the head in the sense that most police will tell you this, most community members, we all agree that police should not be doing, that we over-rely on police to solve social problems that we're neither trained for or equipped to handle. And that when, this, for example, mental health crisis, if we've now dismantled mental health crisis around the country so that the largest mental health providers are county jails. And so if there's no treatment, there's no medication, the system has failed, we have failed, then that, when that person is now in a crisis at 2 o'clock in the morning, run around butt naked with a butcher knife is up to a 25-year-old cop now to resolve something that we have failed to deal with, that we have given no tools to deal with and no help to deal with. And so the theory would be if you invest in mental health services, maybe he never goes to crisis. And if he does go to crisis, someone can respond with the officer that's more equipped to de-escalate that so that we don't have the kind of tragedies that we have. So we're in agreement that we need to identify where funds should go, where they would do the most good, and quit over-relying on police to solve every crime problem when you know crime is, a, is actually a symptom or a manifestation of other social disorders. And Ron, you followed in your father's footsteps. He was a cop in Philadelphia. And, you know, based on your age, I'm guessing that was, you know, in the 60s and 70s, maybe the early 80s when you were growing up. And that city had a terrible history of racism in the police department under mayors like Frank Rizzo. So what, what was your father's experience as an African-American police officer in Philly? You know, very interesting question. Um, in fact, my father had no desire to be a police officer, and he was recruited as part of a court action and consent decree mandating that the Philadelphia Police Department change its discriminatory practices in hiring and came under a consent decree. So already you start to see that that kind of change came because instead of finding ways to exclude 
blacks at that time or minorities, they, they were forced to deal with it. They even had to deal with the court order for women. They came up with some standard to be 5'7", which would take a lot of women out of play regardless of who you are, right? So, so he came up at a time where, you know, and even then blacks, you know, black cops stayed with black cops, but it was probably a little bit more integrated. So it was a different time. When him and I talked when I became a rookie cop in Oakland, you could see it was a different time, but his experiences and being on the street were invaluable. But even my dad would tell you, and he has since passed, that, you know, how we policed and the role that police played in the community was pretty, at that time, pretty tense, very tense in the 60s and 70s. And black cops were not enough to really lessen that. And so they came under fire as well in some cases, although I think there were, for, there were associations formed with black cops where they tried to push back into further diversify, uh, and things of that nature. I do want to, can I correct one, one quick thing? Sure. Um, I keep hearing they call it to Gavin Newsom to put together a task force, and it's not so much a task force that the governor has put together as much as asking Latifa and myself to work with the subject matter experts around the state to identify some of those best practices, because I think he's at the point now that we don't have to relitigate, we don't have to re- research or find new evidence, it's time to put things together to move towards action. So this is not going to be a task force in which we deliberate and debate and mm-hmm. have a lot of evidence. This is going to be more of us leading and talking to all the state associations and stakeholders and community and getting the feedback so we can then pull out of it some of the top recommendations for the governor. So I just wanted to make sure that was a little bit different than the Obama task force, which is still heck of fast and we did it in three months. But a, a quick follow-up about your, your, your dad. Did he, you said he didn't want to become a cop, particularly he was recruited, but did he encourage you to go into law enforcement? Or what made you, what did you see as a kid that made you want to do it? You know, actually, he did not. He never, he didn't push me that way, but he didn't push, he didn't push me towards it. He didn't push me away from it. And growing up, and one of the things that stood out for me was the camaraderie of cops at the time. Right. In other even words, even I, though I, even I, though African Americans weren't always part of the club in some ways. Yeah, but most of the camaraderie would have been other black cops at that time, right? Ah. But it was the camaraderie. It was the pride I saw when he put on the uniform. I mean, he was meticulous. The creases had to be perfect, and he took pride in that. It was um, knowing that he was there to help. So I think at a very young age, I want I knew I wanted to be a cop, and I went into the military first, and then then it became a natural evolution. So. He didn't, like I said, didn't push me that way, but I went that way anyway. <laughs> and you went that way. You mentioned this, but you, you went through the academy and were hired by Oakland Police Department, which, of course, has had its own series of um, racist incidents and, and its consent decrees and oversight. What was it like becoming a black officer in OPD in the 80s? I mean, did you see those problems pretty clearly from the get-go, or did it take any time? No. I was in the academy my first day, not even in uniform, still wearing a suit. And a deputy chief at that time came in and looked around the room. I looked around the room, it was probably 35 of us, and maybe six of us were of color. And he says, some of you in here simply because of affirmative action. Mm-hmm. But then he says something, that, and I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> but then he says something that, that, that also told me that there was a second part of the equation. The only question I have for you, now that you're here, what are you going to do? So I got to, I know, it kind of was almost like he was removing, that's the discussion, that's what everybody's going to assume. If you're black now and you make the police department, you get promoted, it must be affirmative action versus I passed the test, I did well in my interview, I actually deserve to be here. Um, and so that kind of stayed with me. One, it showed me just the level of how race is still impacting even then. 
and it showed me, but at the same time, if I work hard, maybe I can make some advancement for the organization. You were with the OPD at a time of, you know, Marisa alluded to some of the problems, the rider scandal, among others, those rogue cops that were planting evidence, beating up suspects. Did, did you see all those problems coming? And did you ever participate, not in that, but, you know, I know you did undercover drug busts, for example, which, you know, we look back on those now and it's like, oh, really targeting, you know, young men of color in particular. Um, did you have qualms about what you were doing? And, you know, did you see it all coming before it happened? No, I tell you this. When I was a, a a cop before I made rank, so in the early in the came on eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight. I worked at that time. You guys may remember we had a drug task force. Mm-hmm. And, and here's what I mean by the system. So the system was designed, and I was convinced, and I had to admit to this, convinced that the scourge of crack cocaine was destroying my community. And so every time I put a handcuffs on a drug dealer, I was helping my community. And that's how cops are led to believe until you look back and go, I don't know if that was that helpful. There might have been better alternatives and options, and all I did was create a generation of people that now have no options because they got to check the box because they're in jail and they make, because they had no, some, some people had no options. So as I started seeing more and learning more and started seeing my community, it became clear to me that there's a, there are better ways to fight crime. With regards to the rioters, you know, I'll be honest with you, you saw that coming a mile away. But <laughs> once again, is when political leaders are, are promising 20% crime reductions, right, and that somehow the police can deliver it, which is nonsense, then the only way they can deliver it is the oversaturation of cops in the neighborhoods, which leads to abuses. So people like me and others were yelling and screaming that this was predictable, and this is why, they're in the, this was why the consent decree was appropriate, because it goes to my point about the systems again. It's about mm-hmm. why you're out there, what you're told to do, and how you're held accountable to it. So... For those of us at my age now, is that 35 years later, we have, to, we have to accept accountability for the contributions that we did and then take responsibility to change the system, which I've been focused on for 20 years now, to make sure that we never go back to that, those days where, we're just a, where the strategy of this country was the mass arrest of young men of color. Yeah, but I mean, how hard was that? Because one of the things we hear a lot about, and I've heard you speak about it, is this issue of groupthink, right? And, and, and you know, it's the, it's the issue of culture we talked about earlier, that it's hard once, you know, sometimes even if you are being oppressed, you become part of a system that oppresses and become the oppressor, right? Like, so were there individual conversations you were having? I mean, did you ever feel like a pariah raising these issues? Like, how do you feel like you were able to kind of have those conversations, not with the broader public, but but with the people within the department that mattered? You know what? I, I think it's, it's, I think a lot of people have this every day. I don't think there's any super strength required or superpowers needed. I think you have to be comfortable in who you are. And, and, and I would tell every officer of color to remember a couple of key points that mean something to me. One, when people tell you that you're a cop that happens to be a black, you must stop and remind them, no, you're not. You're a black man that happens to be a cop. There are two different things, right? Don't give up your identity to wear blue. You're not blue. This, that blue, this blue lives argument, quite frankly, is an insult to me as a black officer. I'm not a blue life. I'm a black man with the experience of a black man in this country. You will not take that away from me, and I will bring that to the job. And the more we diversify, the more those perspectives come into play to where it's not that you're standing in the wind by yourself with superpowers, is that you're bringing your perspective to the workplace and it's as valued as anyone else. One of the greatest ways to reduce force in police departments, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, is to add women to the force. Hmm. And there's actually research on that. Right. Women use less force and still accomplish the same exact outcomes. 
In other words, they take bad guys to jail just like men do, but they do it with less force and under less and under better circumstances. So that so the more you diversify your department from gender, from race, the better decisions you make, and the more you start learning what kind of impact your decisions actually have on people. You know, you did spend time, Ron Davis, with uh, with the president's task force, obviously, and you know it's been five years since those uh, recommendations were released. Do you feel? like anything changed as a result of that? And I mean, obviously, you're very hopeful now. Um, are those things, is that going to be dusted off now and, and implemented in more places? Is that the hope? Or, or have well, we moved think, on? Well, I, interestingly, though, when I left the before we left, when I was in the administration, so not, not only was I the executive director of the task force, but when I, got, when I went to the administration, I was director of the cops office. Now, for those who don't know, the cops office is community-oriented policing services, and we're basically manage about $1.4 billion in grants on an annual basis and probably put out a fresh two, $300 million every year. So when we put out the recommendations, I had the ability as director of that office to take $200, $250 million in grants to incentivize the recommendations. So we made a lot of investments as we left. And once we left the administration, I could still see those investments. A lot of people were still moving forward and still embracing it. Now, candidly, the Trump administration tried everything they could to undo it, take it down off the Internet, throw it in a trash can. But a lot of it continued because of the investments, not to the rate we would want it, but it still had some progress. I think it was a similar document. It had impacted more than any report I've seen in my time, but it did stall. Yeah. In fact, that's a better word. But now it's coming alive again. That was former East Palo Alto Police Chief Ron Davis. Earlier, we heard from activist and BART board member Latifa Simon, they're co-chairs of the Governor's Task Force on Police Reform. And that's going to be it for this holiday edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.